Those of you who have been here before, been to retreats like this, it's typically called the integration talk, where you inter- it, you, we talk about the so-called real world that we're going back to as we leave Yogi Land, <laughs> i.e. Disneyland. Uh, <clears throat> what we're talking about are some hints as to how to integrate what we've learned here with what awaits us there. And in one sense, it's a perfectly good use of the term. But in another sense, all day long there are integrations as we move from one situation to another. Some of them are uh, quite marked. In the comfort of home, informality, suddenly to our job where certain things are required of us. So all day long we're moving from one situation to another. Um, <clears throat> and there's a perspective that we've been emphasizing for quite a few years actually uh, that I think got neglected on this retreat. And if so, uh, I apologize. What happened was the breath took over and became the star of the show. Uh, and that's fine. But what got neglected is an emphasis on practice in life. Can, we, can practice in life be identical? Rather than I'm doing my, in quotes, spiritual practice and now I'm going back to the real world. Uh, as far as I can tell, there's only one world. There's just life. Uh, this is one expression of life. That's all it is. It's a slice of life. Now, we can make it... It is special. You can accomplish certain things here that you can't accomplish anywhere else, or it's difficult to, at least for, for, for some time. We uh, have crea- these, situa- these conditions have been created since ancient times for exactly this purpose. The silence... Uh, moving out of, uh, moving into the country, away from all kinds of requirements, leaving our family job, social, everything behind temporarily, and then having an organization and rules which enable us to cooperate with each other, maintain and protect the silence. And when you sit down, uh, it's an exquisite simplification of life. You have no other responsibilities but to be with yourself. It's not about picking up the phone or answering an email or watch the no business decisions to make, children to look after. Now in your head that could go be going on, but in terms of requirements, uh, they're pretty simple. Just sit and be with yourself, maybe the hardest of all. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about the real world, uh, as it, and that what's often emphasized how difficult it is out there, and now we're going back into that. There are difficulties here as well. Each, there's a challenge in each situation. What we've neglected, I feel, I've neglected it certainly. I mean, we've hinted at it, but in the past, uh, much stronger emphasis on making sure your yogi job is part of your practice. It isn't some chore that you get over with so that your mommy then lets you go and play. It's uh, as valuable as what goes on in the hall or the walking. It isn't unless you make it such. So it's this view of practices, whatever you're doing, that's your life. Now, 
it's, let's say you're um, doing something very, very ordinary. Uh, what makes it a Dharma practice is not the activity. It's the quality of, of consciousness that you bring to it. That is, by wholeheartedly entering into it, being alert, sensitive, seeing ways in which you limit yourself, you're not fully uh, doing what you're doing, or you have strong resistance to it. That's why, the, as far as I know, uh, unless there's a medical reason, uh, we insist that you take the job that you were assigned. And some of you, I know from the office, received jobs that you didn't like. And I would say, good. Okay. Um, why? Because it challenges you. It's an opportunity for you to grow. Let's say you hate doing bathrooms or you hate vacuuming. That brings up things. And here we have an ideal simplified environment where you can look at your resistance. It's not to do, to do an impersonation of the, uh, the, an Olympic bathroom cleaner or how much I just love toilets. But uh, the approach that's emphasized here actually comes from a, a, a very great uh, scholar yogi named Nagarjuna, who's sometimes considered a second Buddha. He came hundreds of years after the Buddha. And it's the way of negation. That is, you don't try to attain an ideal so much by striving to be what you think you should be as seeing the ways you aren't the ideal. So if you want to be nonviolent, sure, don't kill anyone. But rather than trying to impersonate Gandhi, uh, you see that you still have aggression in you and you work with the aggression. So then the natural nonviolence is there, but it's not getting fully expressed because you do have aggressive tendencies. It's just true if you do. Most of us do, physical or verbal, etc. So it's an approach where starting where you are is uh, something that you have heard this, and maybe you've gotten the message that we value everything. So uh, how could going to the toilet or cleaning be as valuable as sitting in the hall? It is. In fact, it might be more valuable than the teaching. Look, supposing uh, I can't, we started the retreat, and the first night uh, we said, um, gave you the instructions, the full instructions, laid it out, made it clear, answered all questions, say, okay, have a good week, we'll see you in seven days. Uh, you would be furious, but you could get through it. Now, supposing there was no toilet paper. So which is more important, the teachers or the toilet? <laughs> okay. Just so daily life is... <laughs> Look, uh, I learned a lot of this in Japan. I actually saw in Zen monasteries, monks bowed to the toilet. And at first, I, I had this response. But it's sort of seeing that everything is playing its role in helping us to live. Even what we don't like is, but with this attitude, the Dharma attitude is a bad situation is a good situation. We're weird that way. We turn everything around. Nothing uh, is, we don't, we don't just fall down and give up. That is, we see, well, what can be learned in this situation? So from that point of view, Life precedes any of these forms. Before there was Vipassana or whatever, Zen or anything of that sort, there's been life. There have been many, many, and there still are, attempts for humans to try to figure out how do we live well in this incredible challenge of being in the human form where there's so, mo so many problems and we uh, grow old and we grow ill and then we die 
And everything does, but we know it. And then we read books about it, reminding us, and we come here. And so how do, how do we do that? So been, there have been lots of solutions in the different religions and so forth. This is one. I hope that it is of some help to you. Okay, um, in emphasizing daily life, as, in other words, when you leave here, what you go back to is not inferior to here. The reason that I'm emphasizing is because I found in the early years of my practice, for myself and certainly for what I, as I was watching, uh, this, is, this becomes so special that people organize their life around the next retreat. Uh, and in those days, we were here and in Asia, we were doing lots of three-month retreats and so forth. And sometimes we had to raise the money to uh, next year come back for the next three-month retreat. And each retreat uh, was sort of a, an accomplishment, like a combat veteran, you know, three or four duties of rotations in Afghanistan or Iraq, and people would wear their three-month retreats, not visible medals, but it would turn up in conversations. And then nine months between retreats, everyone was talking about either the retreat they just were on or where they were the next one. In the meantime, life was passing us by. And if you get, keep doing this, you, you get pretty good at it, and you can really get happy. Just the breath alone. Let's say you decide, yeah, I've heard all this talk about wisdom, letting go, and permanence, all that. I just like the breath, and I feel so good when I do it, and that's all I'm going to do. Fine. It'll really help you in your life. You may, you'll find that you'll even be a bit more alert without it being an intentional project in your daily life. So there are a lot of good things here that can be learned here. It's, more, uh, it's easier to accomplish it because the conditions are intentionally assembled to help us do that. So then let's say those of you who are driving, this is such a common experience, that's why I bring it up all the time. You get in your car and you have your wonderful samadhi that you've attained here in seven days. And as the mileage ticks off and the mileage you know, goes uh, up, the samadhi goes down. <laughs> as you get closer to Boston, samadhi gets lower and lower. First few miles into small towns, you know, Barry, that's okay. Then suddenly police cars, ambulances, big trucks, uh, you get stuck in traffic and there's a long wait. And, oh, you've got to pull over and get some more gas. Let's stop uh, at this station here and go take a break. And you know, all they have are these, you know, these donuts that are mainly air. Uh, and you're a health fattest. They don't have any non-glutinous stuff here. Uh, and suddenly, well, what did I do for seven days? I, I'm back. I'm the same jerk that left. Okay. Okay. Let's rerun that. You're leaving here, and as you drive, and as you see the samadhi, you start losing that calm and concentration because different conditions obtain. But if you see how you get attached to what you've accomplished here, and as you start to, some of it starts to fade and, and weaken, and you see yourself suffering because of it, then that can be an occasion for wisdom to develop. So it's not necessarily bad news. In fact, it can be good news. You realize that if you attach to anything, you will suffer. Now, that's a basic teaching of the Buddha, but you just test it. Matthews emphasized faith or conviction, but it's not blind faith. It has to be verified. As you know, you've heard, and that uh, that gets verified by experience. 
it's not by reading more books about attachment leads to suffering that are better written or by teachers who have a more famous. It's by seeing it in your own life. You start to see that when you try to hold on to something in a changing world, which includes you, you're changing, the world is everything is changing, it's a, uh, it's a formula for suffering. It's a, it's a setup. And as you see that, then if you learn that, that's a piece of learning how to live. That's a piece of wisdom so that you're not wasting your time because the essence of what we're trying to do here is not to get particular states of consciousness, but to get free of unnecessary suffering. In the Buddha's teaching, so much of the unnecessary suffering, the ignorance, and the both individually and worldwide, is, originates in the psyche in the individual psyches and the collective psyche. So you could say the problem is nuclear weapons. But that's a byproduct. War is a byproduct of, a, of the, the way the mind is. Atomic bombs were invented out of a mind that already had certain inclinations. So that if you're going to the root cause, of course, have, we need peace conferences and we need to reduce arms. All that, that has to go on or is external change. It's not either or. But unless the quality of mind changes in the human race, nothing's going to happen. Look at all the peace conferences we've already had. Endless books written on it. Great people who've, who've made it very, very clear. War is obsolete right now. The, the weaponry is so powerful. Well, that's all a byproduct of the mind. So we're psychonauts. You know, there's some people who are exploring way up there, then there are people who explore the oceans, then there are people with micros. You're going deeply into microscopic life, cellular life. We're exploring consciousness. We're psychonauts. That's Bob Thurman's term. He's a gentleman who teaches Tibetan Buddhism. And in order to do that, you have to equip the mind so that it's, it, we don't have a microscope or a telescope or so many of the extraordinary advances in photography that are useful both externally and also to understand the body and health. So we're, it's, it's a, a weird situation. We're the telescope, microscope, we're the, the visual instrument, and we're also that which is being seen. The, the, that which is seeing and that which is doing, being seen, it's all us. Some of you are taking notes. You already know my rap on notes, but if you want to, go ahead. What, it's all over. Anyway, we had no power even when we said it. <laughs> we can say anything we want. You guys don't listen. <laughs> We've told us a number of you, stay downstairs in the cool hall because the heat is dangerous. Uh-huh, thank you. Oh, that's very good. Thank you. Little note, it's good to have such caring teachers. And you come up here and sit here anyway. So we're used to it. It's all right. We do our best and we know it's we become parental figures, whatever we say. Then five years from now, when you dissociate it from what we've said, you'll start doing it, like children. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm speaking about myself. Um, so what, the, perspective, the perspective is one of life as a whole, W-H-O-L-E. And when we're here, correct action is what we've been doing, protecting the silence, uh, under, uh, everything that we've been elaborating upon all uh, this entire week. When we leave here, exhale it. It's over. Get into your car, wherever you're going, airplane, bus, 
train, whatever, whatever's next. Exhale it, make room for what's next. If you see some of the things that are here trailing you, it's not to get into war with it, but if that is interfering with what's next, learn from it. And if you start suffering because you want what was here and you don't want what you're getting next, then learn from that because it's inevitable because there won't be here. Is that too deep? <laughs> there is there, and here is here. So what we're always mindful of is what's already here, and here is where we are, always. It never stops. Make up a make-believe future, time travel into it, but it's happening here and now, in what is. It's what is. Make up, reinvent the past, Inhabit the past, horrible, wonderful, childhood, college friends, whatever it is. Sure, you can do that. that oh, that's my, it's happening right here now. So once we wake up and, we, and understand how precious here now is, that more and more we come back to what is. We start living in what is. Instead of thinking our way into what isn't over and over and over again. So... Now, when we, this is something I've discovered over many years of, of teaching this. When we emphasize daily life, and people will go home, and you all, all of you have had some training where you wouldn't be admitted to this retreat, you know that what will be uh, suggested, and I'll suggest it right now, but uh, I'm sure you've heard it before, it's really helpful to develop a daily sitting practice. Of course it is. Okay, but then we hear, oh, daily life is my practice. And then the sitting practice starts becoming receding in interest. Before you know it, I don't need to sit anymore. My three-year-old, I have a live-in Zen master in the house. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have three-year-olds living in the house. I, the world is crawling with Zen masters, I notice. Uh, it's not to, uh, to drop this. It's to extend this quality of interest into everything you do and to protect this form because it does have a special contribution to make. And let's say you, so you, sit, you establish a sitting practice, and if you start seeing the value of it, you st at first, typically, we fit our sitting into our life. If you really see the value of it more and more to the degree which we can, we start organizing our life so that we can protect opportunities to, to do some sitting each day, or as much as we can, and also to get away for retreats. I'm not down on retreats, despite what I said earlier. It's just, if you feature retreats to such a degree that you create a divorce between this is spiritual and this is mundane, worldly, uh, the world of dust, uh, you know, there are all these derogatory terms. Uh, samsara, the world of illusion, and uh, nirvana. The, uh, the quality of your inner life is what determines that. You can be at a monastery, because I've lived in them a lot, and and officially, oh, we're, uh, this is a, the holy life. This is spiritual. Because it says, Buddhist monetary, you have special clothes, special hairdo, everything. <laughs> okay. Uh, where are you? I, I really got this when I was in the forest tradition in Thailand. There was one monk from Canada, very, very honest. And he said, uh, and he'd been a monk for 10, 15 years, something like that. And he, he was in pain, and we talked. Uh, and he said, um, you know, much of my day is spent constantly creating this image of myself. I'm a monk, I'm a monk, I'm a monk. I'm saying, so then, then you're, you're officially living the holy life. That's what it's called. But how is this any different than being in Times Square? 
you know, where people are preoccupied. I want to make a million, I want to make a million, I want to make a million. Or he, she looks good. He, she looks good. He, she looks... In other words, uh, it's not your... Uh, the renunciation isn't how many pair of shoes you have or how many outfits you have or whether you use makeup or not or whether... Uh, whether you have sandals that, because I've been, Matthew knows as well, you get criticized sometimes at monasteries. If you have healthy sandals, they make good ones in Germany, you know, arches and so, get rid of those and get the ones that they sell in, uh, I don't know, you, you know, $2.50 that are terrible for your feet, but they're, uh, it's very spiritual because you're not spending a lot of money on them. Of course, then you'll spend the money on your doctor you know, <laughs> and your podiatrist. Uh, so to me, renunciation is a big term. The key, the key for me, the only, the real renunciation is not how many objects you have. Whether you have a beautiful car, a beautiful home, a good, you're married, have ten children, no children. That's it's your relationship to what makes up your life. And if there's identification with what makes up your life, and you're using it to help sustain this notion of being a separate, independent egomaniac, who's often who's pretending to be very humble because we're on the path, so you can get become an egomaniac about Zen or Vipassana or Tibet or anything really. So it's inner. Finally, you'll see that freedom is a is a is seeing accurately into where we're holding on. And the forms don't necessarily have to change. You can keep your job, keep your partner. You can have 50 pair of high heels. It's okay. Uh, you can use mascara, makeup, uh, get your nails done, uh, wear a three-piece suit, all of that. That's not where the suffering comes in. Even money isn't suffering. It's because we don't know what to do with it. So finally, uh, I'd like to get to... Uh, we're, we, we've been using the breathing. And you might say, well, you haven't said a word about breathing now. Because breath awareness, being portable, it's a very simple observation. We're always breathing. Uh, it's with you, and it can help you in any of these situations when you feel you're becoming too complicated emotionally, or you feel very agitated, or any uh, uh, state of consciousness that, that is not helpful. And so there's the breath, in, out. It might be just two or three breaths. Now, sometimes uh, Anapanasati is taught so that you're encouraged to stay in touch with the breath throughout the day as much as you can. Some people, quite naturally, are inclined to do that. I wouldn't interfere with that. But for many people, that it's more a selective, skillful use of the breath when you need it. Uh, read some Thich Nhat Hanh. He's excellent in terms of uh, you know, just before you pick up the phone, especially if you know it's your mother-in-law. No, you know, uh, perhaps be with a few conscious breaths and then pick it up. Or uh, this one I tried for my wife. She just won't do it. My wife is a sweet, gentle, kind, generous, wonderful human being, unless she's behind the wheel. Then she is like the proverbial drunken sailor. Anyone here from the Navy? You know, it's just a phrase. I'm not against the Navy, you know. And when anything that's off in other drivers, suddenly I, I thought I married this sweet, wonderful, kind, sensitive, generous lady. Suddenly there's Dracula behind the wheel. <laughs> you know, and I say, Galena, she's from Russia. Galena, please just be with your breath. Good chance. 
you know, <laughs> you know, ah, you're as bad as those other drivers. Get over with them. I, you know, and you know, so, but if you take it on because you're yogis, right? Ooh, okay. You are, so then sometimes when you feel in those moments, let's say you're pausing, there's a traffic jam, or you're online and, and when you're shopping for food, and there's a, a lot of people ahead of you. Uh, those are opportunities where you don't just close off and go into the breath and then uh, someone has to nudge you and say, hey, it's your turn. You're, you're both breathing and aware and you move. You look like a normal person. Would they? <laughs> they don't know what's going on inside. Okay. What you want to avoid is where the breath becomes so wonderful for you, and this is an actual one, I think I used it in one of the groups, where a, this fellow comes up, he really was taken by Anapanasati, and he says, my girlfriend is complaining that when we're together, uh, I'm much more, I'm, I seem to be distracted not listening to her completely because I'm, I'm following my breath. He said, yeah, she's completely right. Uh, the breath is, is helpful insofar as it helps you listen to what she's saying. If that improves your ability to pay attention, then it's doing its job. If you're using that to get away from here it comes, the same old... Uh, <laughs> uh, then there are other things you could do. You don't need to learn breath. You already know those skills. You make up stuff in your head, but you look like you're interested. <laughs> okay. Uh, so... Breath awareness is designed in the service of staying awake. Please remember that. Now, there are occasions like that's one of the strengths of a retreat where you have so little responsibility other than, let's say, when we're sitting, we're doing the first contem contemplation, where you just drop everything temporarily and you just are with the breathing exclusively in the whole body as we've been doing. That is not kindergarten. It's a very, very useful skill. I just want to make sure... People don't see that as, as some kind of, that's for beginners, and now we move on to Vipassana. That's for, you know, the uh, Navy SEAL Vipassana students. The Buddha uh, was already fully enlightened. One time the monks were so problematic, he got so fed up with them, that he was gone for a month. And when he came back, where, where have you been? He said, I was just doing Anapanasati for a whole month. Just, just breath awareness, concentration. Not any, and they said, well, why do you need to do that? You're the Buddha. He said, wow, it's just a wonderful way to live. I was just for a month, first of all, I didn't have to deal with listen to you guys, and uh, just allowing the breath to just bring a lot of joy and rejuvenation and peace into my life. So learn how to use it skillfully, but don't use it, unskillful would be when it's, when it's being used to, uh, it makes your life more difficult. Then That's not what it's designed to do. It's in the service of mindfulness and learning. Um, Daily life. Uh, as far in, in reading the suttas, if any of you have read the Buddha suttas, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but my reading of it, of many of the suttas, is the two themes that come up again and again and again is one, the impermanent changing nature of all forms. Everything is arising and passing away and in uncertain, and, in, and it's uncertain. You don't know what, when, what, how, a lot of surprises in life. Okay. Uh, if you recall, when we got to the Vipassana part, the second, is as we breathe in, breathe out, just without an agenda, watching everything there, 
we've been encouraging you to watch it all arise and pass away. That's the contemplation of a Nietzsche, impermanence. Whether you know it or not, now it's happening anyway. And as you learn that, as you start to see rising, passing away, rising, passing away, uh, when that law, which it is a law, test it. It has nothing to do with, you don't have to be a Buddhist to learn from it or observe it. It's as much as a scientific law. It is a scientific law. Okay. As you watch that and you start to see especially the nature of mental f- formations, emotions, fears, all kinds of things, some of which we dread, uh, you see that they too are subject to this law of change. As you start to attend to impermanence, and you see things that, without understanding this law, we think are really solid and enduring. And uh, as a result, because we've projected this onto them, then we have a problem. We've made certain mind states into awful problems because it's, when they come, it's as if they're there forever and they're going to destroy us. It's a tsunami. They're going to overwhelm us. If you see, let's say, fear or loneliness a few times, as it comes up and it goes away. And you start to see that it isn't as solid as you thought, that it's like everything else. It comes and it goes. Your relationship to it starts to change. And as you do that, there's understanding that comes with that. And it can become how to get this in for a gentleman over there, bone deep. Get it? Right. Good. So we have at least one happy camper going home. Get it bone deep, right? Really. So now it's not just conceptual. It's more and more you start living in the world as it is, not because of the. To begin it with, it's an idea, a true idea, a good idea, but it's still out there and it has to kind of sink deeper and deeper until you're dancing to the music that is playing rather than dancing to a waltz and rock and roll is playing. It's not going to, it's awful. And then we wonder why we're suffering a lot. So as you start to see a rising and passing away, you also begin to see emptiness. Because at least in the Theravadan tradition, uh, one way of talking about emptiness is that it's empty of attachment to me and mine, selfing. We keep fabricating us into a mm, solid entity. And that's what suffers all the time. Whenever you're suffering, inquire into it. Find out who's suffering. You'll see it's me. I am. And as you get to know that, suddenly pff, it starts to weaken and dissolve. Now, then people, then fear comes up. Well, if that goes away, then what am I? I'll, I'll be, what, a cipher, a zero, an amnesiac? What, what, what's, you know, uh, what is it, electroshock brain, whatever, you know? Uh, no, you'll be fortunate because you've dropped your t- source of torment. But it's the ego that hears me saying this, and it's terrified. The ego is saying, don't listen to him, because it knows that it's curtains for it. <laughs> because you can't get into stillness. No, no thinking allowed. What? Now, here it's a radical change. Some of it is very, very cultural. It's not just Western, Asian. It's also modern and ancient. Um, Okay, in the sutras, there are two two themes that I see come up over and over again. One is that all forms are arising and passing away. Another one is how to live skillfully. That is, how to live with wisdom. Skillful here means ways of taking care of yourself and the people in your life that are beneficial 
ways of keeping the mind. We're learning how to do that. That's what meditation is. How to, we're re-educating our own mind. You're doing it. And speech and, of course, action. And uh, when we, let's say, speak and act in ways that produce suffering, that's unskillful. It's not wise. Now, if you don't care, fine, then this teaching is not going to help you. But we're encouraging people to care. If you want to be free of suffering, and if you're all here and put up with this heat and you're still here, you care about the quality of your life. I have to assume that, and I don't think it's an outrageous assumption. We all are here because we do care about the quality of our life. And if we take good care of that, and then, of course, actions, certain actions uh, are harmful. And can we unlearn them? Verbal, physical, whatever it is. And we see certain actions are beneficial. Can we cultivate that? Can we strengthen it? Because, oh, uh, we learn that this is, is a good thing. Not only is it helpful for me, but it brings more peace and joy to the people in my life. We can't give the world any more than we are. You, you can do an impersonation of being Mother Teresa. But if you're Adolf Hitler, that's what you're giving. Smuggled in under Mother Teresa's, you know, a kind of a, ma- you know, a little painting of Mother Teresa, but old Adolf is underneath it. So we're trying, we're going to the, the deepest part. This is a journey, an interior journey. So if the world is constantly changing and you're living in a static way, uh, fixations, then it's, it's set up to suffer so that it's unskillful living. So if the world, so let, let me put it simply this, our challenge is how to live wisely in a changing, uncertain world. Does that sound, that, that says a lot. We're living in a time now where a lot of changes are going on. Technological, it's a, kind of, it's a revolution. Ecological, technological, wherever we look. There are all these changes, people unemployed. Now, if things have always been changing. If you read the ancients, they had problems with change too. But it was different. Ours is this way. This is when we're alive. We have to learn how to live in this changing world, which is changing this way. And so we have, it's very helpful if we get to know the law of impermanence, starting with internally. And of course, a big one there is it helps us make peace with the fact that we must age. Inevitably, we do grow ill and we will die. There ain't none of us in this here hall who's getting out of this alive. Sorry. It's a death, it's a, all of us are on death row. We're, this is the Titanic. <laughs> and these are deck chairs. <laughs> and we're the entertainers, musicians. <laughs> but we're getting out of here fast. <laughs> there are only a few lifeboats and we're getting them. <laughs> okay. Okay, but that's just a fact. And can, you make, can we learn to make peace with that fact? Do some people die peacefully? Of course they do. But it's, not, it's typically not handed to us. There are some people who seem to be amazing how they got to be that way. They just die peacefully. They're fortunate. But many of us don't. Okay, so the, the understanding this law of impermanence it's applicable in so many different ways. Things keep changing. And as we see, and a lot of suffering is due to that head-on collision between our insistence that things be a certain way and, and life which insists on being the way it is over and over again. So we're learning how to develop that quality of attention that is able to learn from what's happening and unlearn what's unskillful and 
cultivate, uh, nourish that which is beneficial, both internally when we meditate. If you start seeing, wow, mindfulness is really a very helpful human's quality. You want to do more of it, but you have to really see it, not as an ideology. You're seeing this is a wonderful human skill to develop. And then you see, well, what happens when I'm not mindful? Oh, you, you know, you drive in, hit someone's fender, they sue you, and you got to go to court. And then, you know, so you start to see, I get it. When I'm not mindful, this is what happens. And what does it feel like when you're not mindful? I don't know. I'm sort of in a fog. What's it like when you're mindful? Oh, it's a, di it's a different, you're more alive. So little by little, we're starting to get it. We're starting to learn. So it's that challenge of how to live skillfully uh, in a changing world. And the changes are not going according to specifications that we can exactly sp spell out. So we're learning how to be attentive, but supple, flexible, adroit. That's why I think uh, you might see now a little bit more of the connection between uh, learning how to be with whatever mind state turns up, however the breath is. We're getting practice on a microscopic level small level inside our little world, which turns out to be quite large. And so maybe some of those qualities enable us to be more at home with the outer world, which is subject to the same laws. It's constantly changing and not necessarily in the way we wish it would. So that maybe this can help us live more skillfully, wisely. To, this is a form of intelligence. We've limited intelligence to thinking, rational, logical. Now it's been enlarged. Uh, 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 a writer by the name of Daniel Goleman, some emotional intelligence. That, in other words, there, there's another form of intelligence. I would say, and now this is another form that's beyond the psyche, logic, reason, uh, thinking, and beyond emotion. And I, I just want to briefly touch upon that. And then uh, perhaps we can have some, if there's some stuff we can talk over together. Uh, I was trying to think of a way to convey it very quickly, the difference. Um, if you go to France, you'll see a sculptor. It, well, you don't have to go there, because so you see it, it's very famous by Rodin, the thinker. Very muscular, looks like maybe he's going to win some, some Olympic event. And he's muscular and the thinker. Then if you see a really good Buddha, not some of these ones that are churned out in factories, here comes another busload of Americans. Get the, we're running out of Buddhas, hurry up, you know. Okay, churn them out. Okay, there are some exquisite <clears throat> Buddhas that have been sculpted that are, take your breath away, they're so alive. Okay, if you see a Buddha, uh, it's a figure who's, in, who's relaxed, and there's a very subtle smile on the face. This is a kind of a serene contentment. Okay, then you get to another a philosopher who's influenced us tremendously, Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Do you see the importance of thinking? I think, therefore I am. The Buddha didn't say this, but if he were alive and here now, he might say, I think, therefore I'm not. Because, that's, because we think that we are what we think. And that's where the suffering comes up. We make up who we are, and then we're protecting it, it gets hurt, we build it up, we reassure us, and all, our whole life is we're in the service of this made-up reality. And the practice is seeing all this mind stuff come and go, come and go. And as it falls away, you enter into stillness. And I'd like to end with just a few words about stillness. 
bringing that into relationship, bringing it in, into everything. Um, many of you have heard of engaged Buddhism, which is uh, an approach in Buddhism where uh, Buddhist values and, uh, and also some meditative um, qualities are brought into political life, into social action. Thich Nhat Hanh and others are involved in that, and that's fine. I would like to call what I'm about to talk about engaged stillness. Because what we learn here, a number of you have asked questions. It seems just uh, allowing, receiving, it seems so passive and fatalistic. Uh, there's a difference between non-action and inaction. So I just want to make this clear. What we're learning is how to establish ourselves in what is. Now here, there isn't, hasn't been that much action asked of us, simple things, your job, eat, and so forth. Um, let me make an absurd example. Should this hall catch fire, and we're all in the middle of sitting, and you've heard all the instructions, and you're a great yogi, and you sit there, receive, you know, allowing everything to be the way it is, uh, uh, receiving it, sweat's pouring down, uh, your sleeve is on fire, you know, <laughs> it's a, a hot, and if you're Burmese, uh, Hot, uh, hot, 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 burning, burning, burning. You know, sitting there, and then all of us, uh, we're finished. Kurt, you know, okay. No, that is, you would be the first one, the person who's really in the moment would be the first one to be in touch with the fact that, that fire is happening here. And wake everything, and let's get out of here. So it's, uh, that's what I mean by engaged stillness. That is, when the mind becomes more still, not as, not as um, enslaved to the thought process, it becomes still, spacious, clear. That uh, is not meant to be left here at IMS. More and more, you have to learn how to do it, but it can be learned. More and more, uh, we, it's engaged. We bring it into everything that we do. The forms don't have to change. You can stay in whatever job you have, et cetera, et cetera. But the quality of consciousness now is less reactive, which is mechanical. We've been doing that all our life because we, no one's told us anything else. As you start watching your reactivity in relationship is a great way to learn about it. Nothing shows us what egomaniacs we are that, more than relationship. That's why people are running off to monasteries, woods, you know, not let me out of here. You know, have children, marriage. You know, sort of like it's hopeless. Where's that monastery? I'm going. <laughs> IMS. At least for two weeks, I can pretend that I'm not married. And in Cambridge, what I hear is the people who are married. How do I get out? And the people who are not married. I want to be in a relationship. <laughs> and I'm sitting here. You want to get out? Why don't you trade? You go there. You know. <laughs> uh, doesn't seem to work that way. Okay, but, and also there are a handful of people who are enjoying marriage. Uh, okay, so <laughs> you can count them on the finger of one hand. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, please. Take my wife, for example. This is an old one. Please. <laughs> no, okay. She, okay. Uh, so engaged stillness is meaning that as the mind becomes more calm and clear, you bring it into life, and that means you have a much more accurate fit quality of attention to, to see what's going on, and then the actions are more skillful. So it's not passive, fatalistic, or anything of the sort. 
It's not narcissistic. I'm sitting there just looking at my uh, belly button. Uh, because as you work on yourself, that's what you, your gift to the world, to the people in your life. And many of you know this. We've been practicing for a while. Uh, without even, you, you start to become a little bit more kind, even if you're not cultivating that. You start becoming a little more generous, not so upset. The emotional problems don't take as much of a toll. And then that's what you bring to your relationship, and people notice it. Often, it, let's say if you have a, a partner, a spouse, or a husband, or a wife, I have to cover all the bases you know, uh, of the different kinds of relationships. Now I can't keep up with them. <laughs> uh, they may notice the changes before you do. You know, they're saying, wow, you're much more bearable to live with. Maybe keep doing this. <laughs> Do this meditation stuff a little more, please. Take my husband, please. Okay. Um, so stillness is something uh, we don't even know it's there. Our culture has emphasized action, talking, doing, all beautiful too. Thinking. It's not that thinking's bad. The capacity to think is a benefit. Is, benef is beautiful. Compulsive thinking, unexamined, is where the, the, the problem comes in. Now. The, there's a vast, spacious field of silence that awaits each and every one of us. And I'm, I'm going to end with this. If you haven't tasted it, you probably have tasted little pieces of it between breaths, between thoughts, or even now and then the mind becomes very quiet. You're tasting the very, very tip of something that has no... You're not going to use it up. It's infinite, and it's called, as you go deeper and deeper, it's called different things, original nature, Buddha nature, nirvana. I suppose you can call it God, whatever you like to call it. Um, I don't find any of the words adequate. I, if I could describe it, I would say you're coming to the source of everything. And as you open to that, there's also a different energy that you have. Uh, that field of emptiness and spaciousness is highly charged with an extraordinarily subtle kind of en uh, energy. The, the, the Tibetans call it uh, the cognizing power of emptiness. Cognizing sounds a little cold, scientific. What they mean is, there's a, there are, uh, I, I can't explain it. The most important healing in my own life has happened through some soaking in that hot tub of silence. And then I come out and, wow. Uh, any slight improvement in compassion for me or kindness has not come from me trying to be more kind. It's, something happens in the silence. Wounds get healed. I, don't, I can't explain it. It's mystery, mysterious to me. I become a mystic at that point. I don't know what's going on. And I don't have to. Because as you get there, the fulfillment is intrinsic. There's no question. And this is a normal part of being a human being. First, we don't even know it's there. Then when it turns up, we get frightened frightened because we don't know what it is and also you have to leave behind what's familiar even if it's torture you know like an old pair of shoes that pinches but you know you know them uh, we have to let the known go k-n-o-w-n we have to leave it behind and enter into who knows what there's nothing going on there it's not true it's highly charged with life uh, I don't know if science can measure it or not but in Dharma language we there's a difference between mind and brain now, the brain, can, does it register? Of course it does. But there may be something that is not just the brain. Uh, if science disproves it, it's fine with me. I'll go along with it. And so I'm not, it's not the explaining of it that interests so much as its existence. And so 
if you start to taste it and start to see it's a normal part of a human constitution, just like we speak and also we, we are silent. We are active and then we go to sleep. It's not that you stay there forever and forget everything else. It's not uh, running away from life. It's that you start to see that there's, there's uh, silence is a normal part of life and that it can be made use of and it's re rejuvenating, renewing, and in fact can even follow you uh, into the different forms that your life takes. Your li everyone's life remains different. We don't become interchangeable ciphers. Your personality is yours, mine is mine. You're issued one when you come into this life at the supply station there. Here's your personality. I don't want to be so, too bad. Here it is, moving on. <laughs> Next. You know. uh, and then it gets changed through your parents, the school system, and the whole, you know, the rest we know. Um, this energy has no form. It's, it doesn't belong to anyone. And it infuses uh, your particular form. It's like electricity expresses itself through that fan and the light. The electricity just goes through different forms. Uh, this is it's not the best image, but it's the best I can do right now. So please keep up a contemplative practice. Protect some time to sit. It's not a luxury to <clears throat> devote a bit of time each day to just be with yourself. Whether these instructions are useful or not, I'll leave that up to you. There's so many ways to do it. The main thing is to sit, to be awake, and to be with yourself, and then go into your day. And don't see your day as inferior to sitting. It's also not superior. It's another slice of life. And every situation that you, every situation that you come to has what the, this question, what is correct action here? Much of it is obvious. You're driving, correct action is to drive, fully drive. You're hugging your child, hug, don't, oh, I love you, and then the mind is uh, texting with the right, you know, uh, you know, do the hug, etc. And if you don't know what is correct action here, you walk into a, a party and you don't know your role there, be with that confusion. Be like, gee, how do I behave here? These people all know each other, they don't know, what do I, I'll go to the, what do I, see that, and then, one of the things you may find is that there's an intrinsic wisdom, which is quite the silence, the stillness, the clear mind, whatever language you want to use. Somehow it's a form of intelligence. It's not logical, but it's not illogical. It's post-logical, whatever term you come up with. Uh, we're tapping that. And so you, you, it's not calculating, scheming, or memorizing what the Buddha said is skillful and trying to explain, uh, apply it. That's at the beginning. At a certain point, you don't need, it's, there's no thinking in real insight. Real insights are, <clears throat> okay, anything we can talk over, anything on your mind? Anything that needs clarification about the retreat and so forth? Or about taking the practice home? Please. Well, if you see your own stories, that takes you to the silence. One of the reasons we're not in touch with silence is that we're much we're interested in the stories. There's no room for the silence. 
Now, once that uh, calms down a bit and you start tasting the silence and more and more becomes a normal aspect of being alive, nothing special, it's just humans have that capability, will you be more able to see your stuff? Yes. Saying? Thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, that really has kept me distant from people and, and having harsh relationships with people. And what I'm concerned is that in a month, so I can sort of have this insight, but I don't find a way to transform it. Yeah, you see, uh, from this point, yeah, from this point of view, the problem is you're trying to get rid of it. And you know, actually, there isn't a need for new instructions. Whatever that is, it's something, it's an occurrence, right? It appeared in consciousness. It's a, a mind state, isn't it? Yeah. It's accompanied by the body. They always are. The, but it's some kind of mind state that is getting between you and people and not in a way that's skillful. I'm just translating what you said into this. Okay. So when the, if and when that comes up, the practice here is to come to know it. It's not to try to uh, shoot it down or push it away or replace it with its opposite, but to allow that. Uh, and now sometimes what that does is it takes you to its source. It might be fear. It might be a certain wound you have from childhood where you're not trusting. I don't know. I'm making stuff up. I'm not psychic. It's not about you. It's just about all of us. Okay. And people learning makes the practice much more interesting keeps it fresh rather than don't get it's so easy to get mechanical and we're many of us are emotionally exhausted from our life and you come to a meditation just tell me what to do don't talk about inquiry investigation exploration all right in out in out that I like in out in out in out, in, out, in, out like just open up and explore you know I don't like that that sounds like work what's work what's work is how we're living now you know fighting things uh, denying them and so forth so what you would do is the same instructions. It's not anything special. Now, uh, don't make silence into something that you've got to strive to get because then it becomes another form of suffering. Just be with what's there. So you don't need new instructions. It's the same instructions. So if it turns up, whether during sitting or in, in life, in fact, that's where a relationship can be so, such a powerful Dharma practice. Let's say you're in the presence of a person and you feel this you, you've identified, you know it, right? You're beginning, getting to know it. Okay, that's a good start. You're seeing, your, you're seeing how it, what it does, and you're not, not so thrilled about that. It's, it's to some degree interfering with full living. I, I'm putting, I hope I'm not overdoing it. Okay, so let's say you're with a person who exemplifies that, and then while you're talking to them, with relationship is a mirror. It sh because you'll feel a reaction, and you, you might see this mechanism go right at work in the moment that you're with them. And it takes practice, but you can learn how to be with another person without losing touch with your inner life. It takes some, you have to want to learn it, because typically we get lost either in the other person or we're just answering and reacting from conditioning. You know, same old mind, just uh, good conditioning, you're, you know, you, people like you, you're a nice person, bad conditioning, you're in, uh, in prison. You know, so um, you, get, you get liberated by, not by trying to free yourself from it, but by trying to see and understand it. And when awareness touches it, then you're not identifying with it. Identification gives it energy and keeps it alive. If you fight it, you're keeping it alive. 
if you get drowned in it, in other words, you don't know it and it's operating and getting between you and another person, that's, it, it loves that, that's nourishment. But what it hates is the light <clears throat> of awareness. And you see it and it starts to get weaker and sometimes in one interaction, you, st you really, the understanding goes more deeply and it applies to more relationships than just that one. But in other words, you don't, don't get ahead of yourself. It's the same old practice and the breath accompanying you can help you because if it's a difficult state, one of the virtues of the breath is it's like a good friend. It's as you breathe in and breathe out, you're aware of this a blockage, whatever you want to call it. Does it do the words make sense? Good. Please. Yeah, uh, it's just language. Yeah, what do I mean by field of energy? Thoughts are so. Uh, it's just language. I'm trying to use more modern language for it. Uh, scientific language. Everything is energy. Uh, so that let's say even seeing mindfulness is seeing energy. It's a very subtle form of energy. Don't get hung up on the word. Um, the reason I'm using it is that people say I was mindful of something and then we, everyone learns what to say. You know, we get all, I was with it, I, I noticed it, you know, and I've learned I have to question, find out, well, just what actually is going on. So field of energy is essentially, see, a better way, to, a different way of saying it is just what's happening to you. So I'm, I'm using it as a, see, because the way, let's say in some of the ancient texts, they're translated as objects, like thought objects, mind objects. Um, that implies they have more solidity. Than, than the energy is something that seems to me, using English language, comes a little closer to the fact that everything is... And some energy is very extremely subtle. I would say the energy in silence what happens in the silence is a kind of intelligence. This is the best I can do that's activated and that you have access to. You don't get it, can't get it in school. And it doesn't come from thought. It comes from thought being suspended and that it's inherent. So if that word doesn't do it, don't worry about it. Which metaphor? Matthew used the boat metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you have to explain it, and then I'll see what I can do. Well, I'm just, you, you get to the, another shore. Yeah. It's just a metaphor that you keep going. Right. You're, you're in the boat, you just keep going. Is there, is there something under the shore that we're going <laughs> You, what, you want to answer it? Yeah. <laughs> he dug himself into the hole, let him get himself out. <laughs> When you get to the other shore, don't put the boat on your back and carry it with you. Get it? So, so the breath takes you to freedom, or the, the, the container takes you to a place where there's free, where there's non-reactivity, where you're fresh in the moment. But then once there's freedom, then you don't have to carry the, carry the technique that got you there along with you. So is that what you're talking about, the boat? When you get to the other shore, just drop the boat. 
Here, this is, right here, this is it. You're on the other shore. This is the Titanic, we've already sunk. We've been <laughs> this is the other shore. Uh, are, you get it? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Okay, good. I'm going to say the same thing in Buddhist language. Uh, one way of talking about it is we're in samsara, the world of illusion, of constant striving, tr trying to get, get, get. And by meditation, you get to nirvana. And some ways of teaching is uh, they're different places. To me, that is more accessible to the way we've been brought up. Our mind works that way. If I practice hard enough, I'll get out of samsara and into nirvana. But to me, a more... Well, I'll just give you what I feel, and I didn't make this up, is samsara and nirvana are the same place. Uh, in other words, if you relate to this moment in a certain way, you're in the world of illusion and you're suffering. In that very place, as you see through it, you're in, you're in nirvana. Uh, there's a Zen image of an ice cube becoming water. It's the same water. It's just when it's frozen, solidified, it's a cube. When it melts, it's water. So uh, these are all, you, you used the word, did you use the word metaphor? Yeah. They're just, every metaphor is, is really rather limited. But it's what Matthew was saying. So uh, does that help a little bit? Well, what do you, what do you, why are you here and what do you want to get? Why am I here? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great to get into what we've been doing. What, what is, but I know it's great that we, what we've been doing, but what, what look, uh, which mind got you to fill out a check, pay for it, get the ticket and get and move your and make arrangements check your schedule uh talk to you that got you to come here there's something that got you to come here what mind is that So you like that. As you get better and better and better at that, we, you might be called nirvana. I mean, is that or? Yeah. yeah. So in other words, you came here to get enlightened. Look, but it's a good question. People will say, I want to get enlightened. You say, well, what is enlightenment? I don't know. You know, sort of like, <laughs> so you desperately want something. You don't even know what it is. Uh, how can that lead to anything but suffering? Uh oh. And one of the instructors was like, boy, if I had, you know, a nickel for every time I did this, I'd be enlightened by And so it just makes you think like there's a lot of misinformation or something out there. There are different models. All I can speak for is the one we're teaching. And I prefer the term awakening to enlightenment. Awakening is, we can really grasp, because to some degree, every time you're mindful in a moment, you're to some degree awake. And then you fall asleep. And that the awake, the, so the, the quality of, a, of wakefulness and the breath can help that, help um, establish attention and then also support it. Um, so a Buddha is somebody who's fully awake. I prefer that term. So I don't, now, if somebody says, if I, that implies the more retreats you get, the more, the, the, the more likely you, probably, you would be a, a, a enlightened by now. I haven't seen that. 
just personally. Maybe it's my problem. What I, because waking up, uh, it, uh, as one of my teachers put it, frogs can sit forever and they're not particularly free. <laughs> So it's not, you know, you can, uh, uh, there's a famous koan. Uh, somebody is sitting, uh, this is a Zen koan, sitting in beautiful posture, and the teacher comes and says, uh, why are you sitting so much? And this person's sitting. This is, remember, don't misuse this, and now I don't have to sit, I'm just, everything is practice. Um, this person was fixated on one posture. And so he, he said, uh, why are you sitting? And he said, oh, to get enlightened, let's use your term. And so then the teacher didn't say anything, he took two stones and started rubbing them together, rubbing them together. And he said, uh, why are you doing that? The student asked the teacher, he says, well, I don't want to make this into a mirror. And he said, you'll never turn that into a mirror, no matter how much you rub those two stones together. He says, and you'll never turn that into enlightenment, no matter how long you sit. Okay. Again, it's not that sitting is, is irrelevant. It's just that it's what do you do? For example, people get, it's just often on longer retreats, people say, and I did walking meditation at four in the morning. Good, it's good exercise. But, you know, <laughs> let's get a cardiologist, see if your condition is improved. Have you learned anything? Are you wiser? Are you freer? This is a wisdom path. So... Could that potentially help a lot by doing more retreats? Of course it could, but it, nothing's a guarantee. It's what you do. I'll leave, here's, I learned this from a dental hygienist. I always ask dentists and hygienists, do you prefer electric toothbrush or manual? And I get different answers. Oh, of course, electric. You know, gets with all the <laughs> manual is, that's, you know, cavemen use manual, you know. Uh, and dental and uh, so they're different. Some will say, it doesn't, you know, you can, oh, I, manual is much better than electric. And then I got one at the person who's my dentist now, a woman from Ethiopia, and I asked her this. <laughs> I, and, and, she, and I've got the best answer. It went way beyond my teeth. She said, she paused, she reflected and said, hmm, I don't think it has to do with whether you use an electric toothbrush or a manual. It has to do with the person brushing. <laughs> Get it? Okay. Yes, please. So, um, putting the Dharma into practice in daily life, yes. I see is, is a wonderful thing, sometimes challenging. Sometimes, yes, go ahead. The greatest challenge is when I'm doing activities where I explicitly need to think. So, for example, Absolutely. When it's time to think, think. It's, it's not complicated. In other words, if, let's say, um, that's what I was trying to make the distinction between the capacity to think and the compulsion to think, and also what is correct action. If you're filling out your income tax, correct action is knowing that one plus one equals two. It's not becoming creative about that. Or I have to go into emptiness to, you know, one plus. In other words, there's a conventional truths. We, we, we live in a world that is also full of conventions and also requirements and skills. So uh, that means you're totally attentive to the activity of, of that, that is called for, in this case, thinking. So it's not, you, you don't need special instructions. Now, the practice even helps there. Uh, 
because let's say people who do writing and thinking, often their emotional stuff accompanies it, like, am I doing this right? Uh, uh, or uh, if I get this email uh, and I send it out and they don't like it, I might lose my job, or you know, whatever. So that the awareness can help see if there is an emotional cost that's accompanying rational work. In other words, rational work is a very beautiful human activity. No one's putting that down in its place. So we're learning how to to know the limits of thinking, when it's useful, when it's called for, and to keep improving it, and when uh, that isn't the skill that will really help us. Uh, This is something you'll have to test, see if what I say is true. As you start to taste the silence, your thought process improves. You become much more clear, uh, less conflicted, and so forth. Many people report it. I found it. I used to have lots of conflicts, much less now. But does that make sense? If it's time to think, think. Okay. Yes, please. Compared to other retreats, I've noticed hardly any emphasis spoken about meta. Yes. Yeah. They're just jokes. Yeah. I I really believe in love. All you've got is love. Now what is that? Let's all hug each other and do kumbaya. And the retreat that. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. There I go again. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, metta is a very useful method. Uh, I made it very clear that we're, we're trying to emphasize certain... Uh, look, what, this is my own conclusion. I've seen that the direct experience, intimate contact with what is, um, when people... Uh, that isn't what we typically are really excited about doing. And yet all Vipassana is going in that direction. And there are a lot of other practices that cultivate very wonderful human qualities. They are not getting to the root of our suffering, but they are definitely useful. And metta is one of them, very useful. Now, do I ever suggest that people do metta? Absolutely. Uh, but that's, a, that's sort of working from the outside in. You're cultivating. Now here, that, that's what I was trying to say. The fact that we're emphasizing a direct perception of what's happening and the breath uh, we can't include everything. I also felt I neglected, uh, usually I, we talk a lot more about t- your yogi job is very important and groups ask people how, what, how are they practicing with the mopping the floor and what does that bring up and so forth. So I felt we were trying to convey how breath as a method can be very, very useful and in the process probably neglected it. But there have been a couple of people who I've told, why don't you pull back from the breath and do some metta? So um, I, it is a very, very useful, there, and there are other uh, cultivating, uh, other practices that are useful. Just we're not trying to do everything on this retreat. So yes, you're right. But no, it, it has, it's good. You like to do metta? What, what, when, who keeps bringing what up? Yes. Same. Do it. It's fine. Um, if I could do a self-diagnosis of, of how I teach, and I don't know, Matthew could do it for himself as well. 
if, and this is just, it's all views and opinions, so I'm not going to hold on to it, but I'm trying to really help you understand it. First of all, I do suggest metta, but let's say somebody, fear comes up and the person is plagued with lots of fear. My highest priority would be to learn how to meet fear face to face, to open up to and receive it. Not the word, but the energy. That, in other words, there's fear, that's a word, and it conditions the energy. Fear is not a good word. Oh, I just love to be afraid. I don't think so. So when you say fear, uh, that can uh, uh, put it on steroids. Okay. So, but there's energy. It's sort of like this. I'm going to have to act it out. It's sort of... Okay. So, but internally, so what you're aware of is that. Now, typically, people don't want to do that. And you can go through years of retreats and find ways of avoiding what you really need to look at most of all. And uh, I would say all teachers have different uh, biases. So some uh, will, uh, if there's any resistance, immediately or very soon go, well, go to metta, do some walking metta, and just drop it. And then others, if I'm off as a teacher, and I saw this, and I'm, I do my best to improve upon it, I saw that I tend to see people as being stronger than they see themselves. And sometimes that's very good, in my opinion. Because I think many of us, most of us, are stronger than we think. For example, I know a lot of women who've had children, and they say, oh, that sounds really hard to do that. And say, have you had children? I said, I've had four children. That's much harder than this. You know, the kind of pain you went through, this is a piece of cake. You know, sitting there, oh, fear, oh, there's fear. You're going through, oh, oh, you know, like, you know, it's nothing. Do it. You know, you're way ahead of the average Vipassana yogi. You know, but, in the, so, but then if I overestimate a person, and that's where uh, I tried not to do that, and I became aware that if I am a little off in my teaching, it would be there. Like this person, now sometimes it's obvious, what the person uh, needs is really just a hug. Or uh, just, you're not ready to look at fear just yet. It's a kind of what in military terms is called a skillful retreat, tactical retreat. A good general is not a coward if they know how to retreat. They realize, sorry to use military, but this is a good one. They know that their soldiers need food and rest and uh, get their energy back, and then they have a chance. Or they see that the configuration is such that they can't handle that. So they with, it's a tactical withdrawal. It's not fear. It's not cowardice. It's intelligence. And then on another day, they can be more effective. So that sometimes, uh, I think part of the skill in teaching is seeing that. Very often it's so obvious that you, you suggest a person uh, do the breath, full breath, not look at fear, just straight in, out, in, out, or metta, or other meditations, or do walking, or go in nature. Uh, and then the time, if the time comes where they're ready for it, then you resume that. Uh, so um, my tendency would be not to immediately jump to that, or not so quickly, because I feel that finally, as we say, the bottom line is to uproot, you're not going to uproot fear by just doing a lot of, let's say, metta. Uh, and yet, then again, it is very helpful. Some people, uh, the breath is totally inappropriate. There are people who have asthma. It's the wrong object, typically, or the wrong process. Metta would be much better to concentrate the mind. So there's that, that, that it, it is useful, and how to use it skillfully is always an issue. Is that? Yeah, it's very, that's very helpful. I just, that's not having a tool yet. It's, one of the, it's a tool, yes. 
And some people use it a lot, and it's very helpful for them. Some not so much. Yes. Same with breath. Yes, please. Please. We'll, there's t we'll, okay, we'll get in both. Squeeze in both. Please. I see suffering in your future. <laughs> well, I will, I will. I know. There can be. There can be. There can be, but I don't want to make it, you know, this. Uh, the question is uh, uh, through experience, there's an, a, a conclusion that you need more sleep than many people, and then, but on this retreat, you found that you don't. Okay. Um, here's a, a use of awareness for everything. Find out if you give yourself too much sleep, that's not so, that's not wise. If you don't give yourself enough sleep, that isn't too much food, not enough food. Uh, awareness, can, it, aside from wisdom, on, on a much more recognizable, ordinary level, uh, you, you can begin to learn about food. This food tends to make the mind sleepy and dull. Don't eat it before the, 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 the sitting after lunch. This food makes me agitated, or this drink makes me eliminate or only drink it at certain hours. This food, not just amount, but particular food, seems to incline the mind to be much more calm and uh, clear. Fine, maybe trust that. It's not reading diet books, which are endless now, and, and then mechanically applying it. You can study things that experts know. There's no, nothing wrong with that. But finally, test it with your own experience. So it's the same for sleep. Now, often in, in Dharma circles, people will uh, be at war with sleep. It's sort of like that's weakness. Uh, I did a three-month retreat in Korean Zen monastery where they made us stay awake for a week. I'm not kidding. And you do it. You do it or you, you leave. And we all did it. There were three Americans. We, we did it. Uh, and would I teach it here? No. Not because I think Americans can't do it or Westerners can't do it. It's because what I saw was uh, you brutalize the body and they have some, it's a kind of tremendous ego rush, greed, macho. Uh, you have, it's good if you're getting ready for the Marines, uh, you know, or to become a Navy SEAL. Next step, they'll sign you right up because you already know how to do that. Uh, so to me, what's much more valuable in the long run are not these push, mechanical pushes. Everyone has to do it. It's a tradition, they told us, you know. But there, were, there was one 80-year-old uh, nun who did it. Okay, she could do it. She'd been, but for some people, I had I, one guy who was with me, he was sleeping through half of it. And I would, he sat next to me, and I would just, uh, oh, no, there was one. Every, we take turns. Of, you whack the person, and they wake up. Um, was it hard on the body? Absolutely. And so since I value the body, it isn't sort of like, life sucks, i got to get out of it, I'm getting enlightened, that question. And I'll, who cares about sleep, diet, just get me out of here. You know, uh, that's, uh, in the short run, that might be impressive. In the long run, I don't see the wisdom in it. So what I would say is, I discovered I need much less sleep when meditation came in. And, but each day is different. Um, 
Krishnamurti, who was a main teacher of mine, I asked him something like this once, and he said, well, when I wake up in the morning, I'll invite the body to tell me how it is. And uh, he did yoga every morning, and he would say, hmm, I gave a lot of interviews yesterday. No, no yoga today. The body just doesn't want to do yoga. So it's uh, training and sensitivity into all the different issues that make up life. What was the, the next one, please? There was another hand. Last one, please. Sometimes uh, I felt like I wanted to pay a lot of attention to just the silence, and there was a wanting there. Sometimes there was just silence, and I, I just, I, I, I'm not sure I understand. I'm not sure I understand. What, what, How can one develop both at the same time? But you're, they are both being developed at the same time. See, it's somewhat artificial to separate shamatha and vipassana. It's more of a, a teaching device, exposition. Um, in other words, if, when we officially call something a concentration method, put in parentheses in small letters, insight. Because you learn things when you're being concentrated. And now we're doing vipassana. But when you're being mindful of what's happening, not any one thing, the mind is getting more concentrated. Now, what I said with the breath, because, for example, there are ways of doing it so that at a certain point, I mean, you may find you're doing it naturally. Uh, a concentrated mind, a calm, steady mind, is, is seeing more insightful. They're not so sealed off from each other. That's only, it's somewhat artificial. Okay, now what I was saying is, um, in terms of methods, once the breath starts becoming natural and very helpful for you, rhythmical, soothing, then as you're breathing in and breathing out and you're looking at fear and you see the impermanent nature of fear, the soothing breath is helping you to see insightfully. They're both coexist. They're synchronized, and they're happening within the same time frame. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Uh, also, you can look. Uh, Ajahn Mahabuo, who we studied with in Thailand, if somebody had a lot of difficulty with concentration, they would start you with vipassana first. And sometimes people are very interested in the way their mind and body works, and they have a natural samadhi. And then the mind starts to become kind, calm from the vipassana, and then you can go back and do. Uh, metta or the breath or some concentration technique. So, but don't make them, don't make, don't uh, dip them in bronze and make them be, do you see what I'm getting at? At a certain point, you can't really, it's, I, I can't separate it in myself anymore. Yeah. Okay, could we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Thank you. The three of us, I can, I'm, spe I'm representing all three of you, we're impressed with how you all lasted through this heat and you're still here. 
and uh, we know that there have been difficulties and bumps along the way, but um, here we are. So, and it's, the groups have been great. Everyone's been doing their best, and uh, it's been a very a live retreat with so much that's going against it. Sort of the inclination to be stupefied is great, in addition to physical uh, difficulties. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the summer. It's supposed to get cooler today and all. Is that right? Yeah. What? Big, big thanks to Jim. Wonderful well, yoga and practice leading. I said all three of us. What? I said all three of us. No, I said all three of us. You did? Yeah. Yeah, but he's the only one, he's the only one that got a clap. Because <laughs> <laughs> we deliver bad news a lot. <laughs>